Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. It is said that nearly a billion people worldwide live with migraine, and yet the condition was largely an enigma until the last five years when research has revealed so much more. Yet the diagnosis and management remains a huge challenge worldwide. Here to share her experience of living with migraine and working with healthcare for many decades is Professor Cathy O'Shea. Cathy, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted to make the acquaintance and to introduce you to our listeners. I know that you are a professor of English philosophy, and yet the topic of our conversation is going to be very much in line with medicine. But I want to go back a step and ask you about where this journey started. Welcome to the call. Thank you so much, and it's a privilege to be with you today. So thank you very much for the opportunity. My deep relationships with literature and migraine disease kind of joined me at nearly the same age, though I met migraine about a year and a half earlier when I was only 14 years old. And my first attack frightened me and my family incredibly because we'd had no history of it in the family, so there was no genetic component. And we didn't know what to do with the searing pain that I was enduring. And we were camping at the time. And my brother and I were up watching a a film at a rec center. And all of a sudden, this just incredible pain. I had no aura. I've never had aura. And yeah, I think many migraine sufferers believe, and, and those who know them believe that most migraine sufferers have aura, but really only 20% of real chronic migraine sufferers experience aura. I never have. But anyway, I was 14. And back then, we're talking back in the 19, late 1970s. So we're, I'm now going to be 60 years old next month. So I've experienced migraine for the majority of my life. And back then, so little was known about migraine. And so that's a story in and of itself, because I think those of us who live with migraine now don't appreciate what we do have in terms of treatment versus what we didn't have back at the time I was being examined and treated and stigmatized and so forth, as was my family. But that was in 1978. And ironically, it was at about late 1979 that I also fell in love with literature and, and the humanities in general. I was in high school. I was a, a junior in high school, I believe, at the time. And I had a teacher who had been a professor at Yale, actually, who came to a very rural high school and made me develop a passion in me for literature and humanities and the arts. And so those passions kind of, I mean, the the experience of, of migraine and the passion for literature joined, you know, in pretty close proximity in my life. And then I went on and I became a professor of English and philosophy at the college where I've been teaching for 37 years now. 
And so my migraine experience continued to ebb and flow through that time and became chronic when I had a very early hysterectomy when I was in my 30s due to another interesting comorbidity of migraine we now know, which was a severe case of endometriosis. And interestingly enough, at the time, that was something never talked about, never written about, but I eventually needed the hysterectomy. And when I awakened from that surgery, I had the worst migraine I'd ever experienced in my life. And the doctors there thought they knew better in the hospital than my own headache specialist, what quote unquote cocktail I needed to helped me with that migraine and it made things so much worse. And I went from being an episodic migraine sufferer to a chronic migraine sufferer and have been ever since. So we've never been able to get me out of that chronic uh, period. Uh, however, I, uh, as I said earlier, I'm grateful for the new treatments that are available today. I was interested by your use of the word stigmatized because we hear this about other conditions that are considered today to be rare. And I imagine migraine would have been considered something rare back in the day. Feels odd to be calling the 1970s back in the day. Yeah, I know, but it's true. (laughs) We're getting older, Kathy, I think. Oh, aren't we though? (laughs) I believe it's still stigmatized. And that's one reason I'm an advocate for Know, migraine sufferers and their families, friends, caregivers, and medical professionals to this day, because I believe it's still stigmatized and it's rooted far back. I knew through teaching literature for years that about the uh, hysteria, the, the treatment for hysteria back in the 19th century for women that we now know suffered sometimes from migraine and they were forced to suppress those things that gave them release and gave them liberty, like writing and freedom of expression and so forth, and were given the rest cure. And so much of the, not much of the literature, but some of the literature in my book, for instance, references or deals with that stigma. It's considered to be a woman's disease. And One of the reasons that there are so few headache specialists today, and there are, I mean, considering there are 39, between 39 and 41 million migraine sufferers in the United States alone, and we have so few headache specialists that one reason is because of the stigma attached to it, and it's considered a women's disease. And so therefore, It's still largely considered to be a largely psychological and due to hormonal issues, which sometimes it is. Physically, it can be for some patients, for sure. But back when I first suffered migraine and when I was 14, I had, I'll just give you a quick example of the stigma. My parents didn't know where to turn because there there were no headache specialists back then. There weren't even a lot of neurologists in the area where I grew up in a small rural area. They finally found a neurologist and my mom took me to a neurologist and 
the very first thing, one of the first things the neurologist said to me is, would you like your mother to leave the room so that you can talk to me about what's really bothering you? And I was just shocked. I was appalled. And I just said, no, I don't want her to leave the room. She's my best friend. <laughs> I would tell her a lot. You know, I'd be much freer to tell her anything than I would you. But immediately he assumed that it, had a, it was a psychological component to it or a family issue that was causing it. The only treatments available at that time were treatments, medications that were used for other illnesses. And so I was taking antipsychotics. I was, at 14, I was taking anti-seizure medications. I was doped up. I was sick. I was a zombie. I had to give up sports. I had to give up theater and art, the arts and all the things I enjoyed in school more because of the treatment than because probably of the problem in and of itself. This appears to be the history of medicine, doesn't it? Because so many <laughs> conditions were treated as, and it's an awful word, this word, hysteria. People ended up having frontal lobotomies and they ended up on an antipsychotics and all kinds of other things. In your research, historically, why has this been the case? Why does medicine often turn to the idea that it's all in the mind? I did find it interesting that some of the pieces I found, I found a piece back even from the 15th century, a medieval piece, uh, a poem actually, by a man. So, you know, 70% of migraine patients are women. So that's one reason we have the stigma of it being a woman's disease. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I know that some patients experience relief once they go into menopause, some experience worsening conditions, some are caused by hormonal changes. That's true. But one poet wrote an incredible poem called Headache, and I had it in translation, and it captured just so vividly the actual experience of the hammering effects of headache. I wasn't a participant in research for the whys because we had so little explanation. I mean, even as I was in my 20s and early 30s, the idea was that the blood vessels were inflamed or enlarged during a migraine attack in, in the brain and, and that that's what needed to be controlled. We've only learned in the last five years, probably, we've grown more in migraine research and development of treatment in the last five years than we have through the entire period of time, in my experience. So I remember my headache specialist, whom I adored and I dedicated my book to, when he retired, before he retired, and I was in tears, knowing he was going to, he said to me, Kathy, great things are coming in the next three to five years in terms of treatment for migraine. Just wait. Great things are coming. And not that he was saying that there'd be a cure because there is no cure, but new treatments have come a long way in term because we better understand the migraine experience and, and what's happening during migraine. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
course, migraine now is big business, isn't it? There are billion, pe <laughs> billion people worldwide with it. It's not surprising that suddenly farmers decided this might be an interesting thing. And we know that migraine research is progressing. Is the experience of having that, has that changed? Or is there still the diagnostic odyssey? That part hasn't changed. I think people really had thought that with the development of the new CGRPs, for instance, that the world was going to take a shift, you know, in terms of for, for migraine patients. And, and it has helped. There's no question. But I've had to experiment with different ones. I've had to go on and off. I've had to, I've had the, the experience that so many others have. And, and I'm actually far more fortunate than many I know in terms of you know trying to get insurance coverage and when you talk about it being a, a big pharma you know pseudical uh, business now it sure is and the problem is that i think one reason we have uh, fewer headache specialists and the retiring at a younger age is because the insurance companies are this is my opinion now but that they but it's based on some you know research and education as well that the insurance companies are trying to tell our doctors how to treat our patients, or, I mean, treat us, I should say. And so a doctor says, I want you on this medication. The insurance company will say, you've got to try three or four other medications before you can, we'll accept you for this medication. And you must leave X amount of time between each trial. And, you know, a year passes before you ever get it approved. And one of the major problems I just was in a conversation with a, a number of migraine organizations today, as a matter of fact, regarding the, the global warming that we're all experiencing and the heat waves across the world and how that's affecting the changes in barometric pressure, which affect a lot of migraine patients, how that's affecting us and how our summer has been different than previous summers. And I was in a conversation with a lot of migraine sufferers and they were saying, yes, this is the worst it's ever been. And yet what people struggle with, um, and I among them, is you're given such a limited supply per month of a rescue medication that should you experience a terrible summer like we are now, and you're experiencing migraine much more frequently, you have to say to yourself, do I take it now or do I save it? And yet the, all the science tells us, take it early. It's going to be much more effective if you take it early. Well, sometimes you don't dare because you don't have that much. Where are we at at the moment with, in terms of making some sort of progress with changing that situation? Has, is there any hope on the horizon? I'll be totally honest. I've not seen it in our, in our country. In fact, we have, a, we have migraine organizations that it's called Headache on the Hill, a major one, where so many advocates go to our capital to try advocate for more research funding and more treatment funding for migraine. And the gross ineffectiveness, frankly, of our government to support the healthcare for migraine patients has been really a major problem considering in, in our country, it is second biggest cause of 
loss of productivity in the workplace. So of, of anything, of, of any illness, and yet we can't seem to get the support that we need, backbone that we need in order to, to, again, I think it's largely because of the misunderstanding, the lack of education, and the stigma that still surrounds the disease. 39 to 41 million people are a large number of voters, I will put it to you. And I'm wondering what it must be like to be diagnosed with migraine today. In other words, are we recognizing it sooner? Has medicine actually got that bit right? I don't know where we are. Are we, are we doing better? I struggle with that. I would feel much better if I felt like more people were going into the field, but I think fewer are, not more. I think that part of the problem is our general neurologists are overwhelmed. They're understaffed. And I will say two neurologists that I have seen have admitted without reservation, honestly with me, you know, very transparently with me that they're not all that interested in migraine treatment and migraine patients. And it doesn't mean they don't care. I don't mean they don't care about the patients, but what I mean is they would rather be focusing on other areas of neurology that are more dynamic. Perhaps they find I will use the word that one headache specialist used with me when I asked her why there were so few uh, headache specialists now, given the the, the vast number of of sufferers. She said to me, Kathy, it's it's not sexy. You know, it's not a sexy area to to go into in terms of specialization. And so what we see is two out of the three migraine headache specialists i've I've seen are now retired and retired before they probably wanted to. And I think in large part because the majority of their job became, data-driven, they had to prove things, they had all the prior authorizations, all the insurance work. They were dealing more with paper and bureaucracy than they were with patients, despite the fact they were caring people. And so my neurologist, for instance, that my current neurologist is one who admitted to me that, you know, migraine is not you know, and it's not an area that interests general neurologists as much as, say, other areas. I'm intrigued that the business side of this hasn't driven the specialization. And I'm wondering whether neurologists might end up actually working more closely with pharma and working in that direction rather than working within the healthcare system. The other area is in terms of primary care, because if neurologists are not doing this, surely primary (laughs) care has an interest in it. My primary care physician was very quick to refer me. He referred me to the best headache specialist in my area for all those years I had. You know, there are so many individualized symptoms of migraine. Migraine is a very complex disease. There are not, say, 10 common symptoms associated with migraine or, you know, 10 triggers that are associated with migraine or even, 
even you know ten, five to ten warning signs. There are so many different ones. And one thing I think that is good is that we're starting through advocacy and through education. We're starting to learn that what our triggers are, you know, as patients, what our warning signs are. Because some things that you would never associate with migraine pain or a headache attack are part of the migraine cycle. For instance, I experienced, and this was just, just, you know, baffled me and astounded me when I first learned that when I would go through an excessive yawning period where I would yawn, I mean, I'd be on my way home from work and I would yawn nonstop. And I have TMJ, which is also associated with migraine, but, and I would have to catch myself because of the pain, because it was constant. The yawning was constant. Little did I know that's a warning sign. It's not a trigger, but it's a warning sign that, you know, you may have a migraine coming and believe me, I now know it. But when I read that the first time that it was, I said to myself, oh my, I mean, it affirmed it for me that I'm not alone, which is of course what literature does for us, right? Teaches us we're not alone. And I think that general practitioners and the neurologists Yes, pharmaceuticals, it's a big, big business, but their hands are tied so much of the time. Let me give you a quick example is that I find really one part of the regiment, I call it a regiment or my toolkit, is a Botox that I have, unfortunately, every 12 weeks now. I started with it every 12 weeks, and then I realized that this was many years ago, and I realized that, you know what? It stops working after nine, nine to 10 weeks. Actually, for me, it was eight to nine weeks. And my, my headache specialist at the time, what he would do is say, we can't get insurance coverage until 12 weeks, but what we'll do is we'll do nerve blocks in the meantime to try to get you through to the 12th week. Then eventually, he fought for me. And he was able to get it down to 10 weeks. So I could get it every 10 weeks. Well, then January 1st of this year, my insurance company sent out a notice saying, as of January 1st, no patient was going to be covered uh, under 12 weeks for any reason. So I'm back to 12 weeks with a neurologist that doesn't do nerve blocks. And so you can see that you get caught up in this cycle where, yeah, it's big business, but it's insurance companies seem to be driving so much of it. In terms of the diagnosis, you said quite rightly that there are a plethora of symptoms and triggers for, and it's, in, it's an individual case. Are patients finding that it's a long time before the diagnosis is established? Or are we still back, as it were, in the bad old days where it's months, if not years, before somebody says, oh, this could be migraine? I think if you're fortunate enough to get to a headache specialist, and probably you're going to have to go through a you know, general practitioner first and then get referred maybe to a neurologist and then maybe a headache specialist that way. But I'll be honest with you, in my area, which is a big medical area in upstate New York or in Rochester, New York, we have several major hospitals around here 
And we have not only not increased the number of migraine treatment centers that we have, but we've decreased them as, as big business has taken over these hospitals. And so we don't have the opportunity as patients to go, say, on a weekend and get infusion treatment or, or shot and, you know, injections for pain or anything to help us through. Whereas we used to have those opportunities, like 10 minutes from me, there was a, a, a treatment center that's closed down now. So in fact, I've been invited on a radio program in the very near future to talk about that. Like, why are we decreasing rather than increasing the amount of migraine treatment? In terms of diagnosis, though, to come back to your question, I think, again, it, it depends on with whom you're dealing. I think general practitioners are trying to deal with so many different illnesses, and the neurologists are, are too. But I think that I will say, I, I guess if I had to make a general statement, I would say that there's more education out there. There's more information available, certainly for migraine sufferers. And so they have to be real strong self-advocates. We really do. You have to be a real strong advocate. And I think that's hard for many people who are suffering. It really is. The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. We're hearing this about every kind of condition, that you have to be a good self-advocate or you don't necessarily get to the right place at the right time. That means that people have to be more aware about the possibility that they could have migraine. Once you become aware of that, they can then pursue that advocacy much more effectively. Do you think the public are more aware or do you think there's just as much misunderstanding about the cause of their symptoms? One of the reasons that I decided to put together the, this literature for, for the book that I did was because I wanted it to be an, an educational tool for people to better understand by, by way of experiencing vicariously what it's like to live with migraine or to care for someone with migraine or to treat someone with migraine so that that you can be better educated and, and know better, you know, what is it that your family member is really suffering from? What are these warning signs? What are these triggers? Are you seeing patterns in their behavior or in what leads up to an actual episode? Because as I mentioned, people associate migraine with bad headache. That's only one portion of, I mean, it's a fierce headache, but, but, it's, but it's, it's only one portion of what migraine is. And that's something I don't think the general public really is aware of. I suspect you're right. And you quoted the figure of 39 to 41 million. How many of those are undiagnosed? Those are ones that are diagnosed, probably many more who are not. There are two sides to the coin, though. I've also talked with people who, because migraine is so misunderstood, that say, oh, I get them too. And 
I, I, you know, I probably don't get them as badly as you do, but I, I get them and I just take Excedrin and Tylenol and, and then I'm better in a couple hours, but yeah, they can be. So in other words, there's, they're both sides of it. They're those who probably are really suffering from migraine and don't realize it. And then there are those who have the general misunderstanding of thinking it's just a bad, really bad headache. So in fact, the, the number could be double. You could have people who have mild symptoms and have not identified yes. as migraine sufferers. They could be those who have severe symptoms but still don't have the diagnosis. And then, of course, there are those who we know about, the 39 million, who absolutely have got the symptoms. Right. And then there are different kinds of migraine, I mean, which I'm just learning about, right? There's vestibular migraine in addition to chronic migraine, episodic migraine. There's what something called, and, I, and I'm not going to claim to know any, much of anything about it, but abdominal migraine. But I do know that there's a comorbidity with irritable bowel syndrome and migraine. Also, one of the major comorbidities that interestingly came out of COVID was POTS. Turns out that 30% of all POTS sufferers are also chronic migraine sufferers. And we saw an incredible increase in that percentage after COVID. So uh, I guess my point being that there are all these comorbidities associated with migraine too. So people may not know they're suffering from migraine because they may be suffering from one of these other conditions that is affecting them more at the time. Kathy, what you're suggesting is that despite medical advances, despite the chest thumping that we do about how advanced medicine is, and you know, we've talked about that even in terms of the treatment of migraine, there still is a lot of work to do, and we still don't fully understand all the nuances of this condition. As you say, irritable bowel, endometriosis, POTS, and other comorbidities which are associated with this condition and makes life difficult for people. I suspect the economic cost of this, which will become much more apparent as we become aware of the vast numbers of people who have it, will drive, has to drive, the systemic changes in how we allow access to treatment. We can't go on like this because as people take time off, the economy, and let's face it, that's the thing that matters to everybody, the economy right. is going to suffer. Right. Uh, there's no question about that. And as I mentioned, there's a large organization called Migraine at Work, and it's focused on just how to better educate your employers and your colleagues about your conditions so that they can better understand what you're experiencing, but also you taking a toll on that place where you're working too, right? If you miss work. And so that, that it's a double-edged sword that way. So, you know, one has to be aware of, of that. And I think too, though, you're right. I mean, it's going to have, a, it has a huge economic impact in so many ways that we need to, we need to do better. We need to do better. And how we get there, I'm not sure. But I think of, I don't know how many times when I am complaining or pitying myself for experiencing migraine or in the midst of one attack or, you know, what seems to be an intractable cycle, I'll think of 
wait, wait a minute. You are so much more fortunate than people around the world that are experiencing the exact same things you are and have no treatment, no treatment and, and no one to turn to. So I have to remind myself uh, and you know, many of us do how fortunate we, we are at the same time and how we have to do our part. Well, I think each of us has to do our part to, to try to advocate for the disease and for the, the research and for the changes that, we, that need to happen. It's our obligation, it's our responsibility, not only for ourselves, but for others. No one can doubt your commitment to this cause and no one can doubt that you are doing your part. How can our listeners support your work and where can they get your book? My book, you know, let me just say a word about that. That book came came about when I was in the middle of a, it was right after my headache specialist had retired and I'd been seeing him for 16 years. He was such a committed, caring, dedicated professional that I was lost when I became in an intractable cycle that was going on for two months. And I could not get out of the cycle and I had no one to turn to. And I went into work one day and I was feeling quite desperate. I made it to work, but I was feeling very desperate. And I finally, just something hit me. I remember in the, my English department office saying to a colleague, why am I not doing what I tell my students to do every day? Which is when they're struggling, when they're grieving or they're having trouble coping, turn to literature because literature lets us know we're not alone. It helps us it helps us cope and overcome. It lets us share in the joys and the griefs and the sorrows and the struggles of life. That's what it's all about. It's what the arts are all about. So I said, why don't you go back to your office and reread this particular piece, which is a seminal piece uh, by Joan Didion called In Bed. It's an essay. And it's an essay that found me. I didn't find it. I was in graduate school. I was thrown into teaching a freshman composition class and without any training and said, here, teach it. Here's the book you're going to use. And the very first essay in the book was called In Bed. And it was by Joan Didion. And it was about the experience of living with migraine. I read that and sobbed. I just sobbed because I saw I was the first piece of literature I'd ever read about migraine. And I thought, this person gets it. I mean, she really gets it. So I went back to my office. I reread that piece. I hadn't read it in 30 years. And I thought, you know, there must be others out there, other authors who are migraine sufferers who've written about, who've written about their migraine experience or created characters who have. And that's where my passion started. And it was really for myself. It was a very selfish act. <laughs> and I just wanted to find comfort and find uh, a way of coping with what my own struggles were. And then it was only after talking to others that I thought, you know, you're fine. I was digging deeper and deeper and deeper and finding more and more. And I thought maybe this would help other people. 
And so I never intended on, nor do I intend to ever make a dime on this book. You know, you don't with an academic publisher where you're getting, you're paying to get all permissions to use pieces, right? So it's not like that's the endeavor. The endeavor is to get it into the hands of people who, who can best benefit from it, can find, because it's a collection of poetry, drama, and fiction, and essays that are, they're arranged around five themes that really connect with migraine sufferers, their families and friends, and medical professionals. But there's a lot of overlap in them as well. And if, I, if somebody finds two or three pieces in there that they connect with, then I feel like I've done my work. I've helped because, you know, you're not going to connect with every piece. I don't connect with every piece necessarily, although I did when I made choices, obviously, to include the works. But anyway, that's how the book came about. It's been a wonderful journey. And what a gift to give the world. The book is called So Much More Than a Headache, Understanding Migraine Through Literature. Is that right? Yes, it is. And where can people get it? People can get it in, I, I certainly am a proponent for independent bookstores, obviously. <laughs> but also uh, Amazon has it, uh, Barnes & Noble, all of the major bookstores have it. It's available, but also... If you want to make sure you're keeping the the price at what it was originally sold at, right? If you order it through Kent State University Press, and I also have a website and Facebook page and all of that, which I'm I'm always happy to to interact with people who are undergoing the same kind of ordeals. We will make sure that the links to all of those are in the show notes with this podcast. Kathy O'Shea, it's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>